Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We got to install microwave ovens, custom kitchen deliveries. We got to move these refrigerators. We got to move these color TVs. I asked my guest today, Brian Broadway of Aspen Partners, an alternative investment shop with a $300 million mutual fund. Why am I playing that there song? Well, it's taking you back to those halcyon days of your high school career when all you kept thinking about was beaches, sundresses, and where am I going to get my next dollar from? Actually, Mr. Broadway, we're playing that for a couple of reasons. That song is exactly 30 years old. Dire Straits released it in June of 1985. En route to it, going to number one, you remember that infamous video with the crude graphics and the cartoons of the guys moving things around? But in June of 1985, let me ask you again, where was the main interest rate of the United States? The main interest rate in the United States in June of 85 was about 11.5%. Wow, you are so right. The question for today's show is, does anybody out there remember when we had a normal interest rate in this country? After all, right now, in mid-2015, we've enjoyed nearly seven years of zero interest rate policy by way of the U.S. Federal Reserve. They've thrown another $3.5 trillion at the Great Recession. We've seen record stock markets, record bond markets. You could issue all manner of junk. You can issue 30-year debt, 50-year debt. I've seen universities issue 100-year debt. Housing has been reflated. The speculators are back. Dot-com mania abounds. And I'm here to ask you, Mr. Broadway, what the heck is going on? But hold that thought. Local Broadcast of Full Disclosures made possible by Elwood Thompsons, aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompsons, located in Richmond's Carytown. Brian Broadway, good sir. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. You've never done radio before. I haven't, and I didn't realize you were supposed to do this naked. Uh, no, no, sir. Uh, not, none of that. Just... None of that jet. This is supposed to be the bond market. This mm. is supposed to be interest rates. It's boring stuff. I'm not Howard Stern schlocking snapple. I thought the show with... was called Naked Shorts. No, it's full disclosure, Brian okay. Broadway. Full That's disclosure. Full disclosure in that we want you as a as a guy who doesn't go out there seeking press, but as a practitioner who's in the trenches. You've been a professional investor since what year? Uh, since 1995. 1995. And does that give you an institutional memory of when things can fall apart in bondland? I ask this because in 1994, there was a big bond collapse in this country. The Federal Reserve had to come out and hike interest rates. Alan Greenspan did, and he took the punch bowl away. And that caused the bond markets to ripple. It caused the stock market to pull back. You actually saw a couple of firms on Wall Street that were close to failure. And my question to you now is that you showed that you can you can volley the serve with dire straits and channel all manner of 1985. Mm. Do the investors out there have enough of a muscle memory about what can happen in Bondland? I don't think so. It, it, it's shocking to me over my career to sort of realize the the typical the average investor's um, short term sort of investing memory. It's uh, always staggering to me to realize people forget about the major market dislocations that have occurred. In my investing lifetime, in our sort of in our adulthood, it's shocking to me. They forget the Mexican peso crisis, the Russian bond. I mean, Russia defaulted on a sovereign debt. I mean, it was chaos, and people act like eh, it's, it's it's all guns and roses. It's wonderful. There's nothing. Son, I, I live nifty fifty in the gold standard. 
Did you? There you go. I mean, of course you did. I mean, I would expect that. Uh, that's how you rolled. Uh, but it's, it is amazing to me when people look back and they think about investing, they forget about uh, some of the dislocation, some of the, the market uh, machinations that have and can occur. And so here we are, five, six, seven years into this central bank nonsense, this intervention. You know, Mario Draghi coming out saying we Mario will Draghi do— Mario Draghi is who? Mario Draghi is the head of the uh, European Central Bank. Darth Vader. Is Why do you call him Darth Vader? He's effectively the equivalent to Janet Yellen uh, here in the United States. The euro countries have a central uh, currency— and uh, unified central banking policy. So their debts have effectively been mutualized. Now you see bizarre things like Ireland and Italy having low borrowing costs because effectively Germany, the strong player in the continent, is well, backing them. But that's because their equivalent to the Federal Reserve has come out and said, uh, we will do whatever it takes to keep stability and volatility out of the market. I mean, this is like a whole other show about the difference between volatility and risk. But uh, you're right. I mean, the, it, it's interesting. It's it's Mario Draghi, and it's also uh, Angela Merkel. You know, the, the Germans are very, very interested in what's going on in Europe, mainly because the German banks hold all these crazy debt instruments from these countries, from the pigs' countries. And so they like to say these days, if you go to Europe, uh, the Germans are, are back. They're just using banks, not tanks this time um, to take over Europe. So uh, there is a great sensitivity to what um, Mario Draghi says, because... What they're effectively, in my opinion, what they're effectively saying is let's um, artificially remove any sort of risk from the market. Let's try anyway. And so what you've seen is if, if the investor, the institutional investors see that there is an external exogenous effort to dampen risk, why not just pile in? So if they are, they're trying to... Do you, do you to, remember the term moral hazard? I feel like it hasn't been used since the right. mid, mid-aughts, right? If you yes. could take us back a yes. little bit. People used to say about Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke's, you just don't want to be there telegraphing to speculators, be it, be it in housing, be it in the stock market or junk bond market, that you're going to get their back. That um, the, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you can expect a bailout from an institution that can print unlimited amounts of money. Right. Absolutely. And, and we've seen that in small doses in the... In the U.S., although it was very selective in, in which institution organizations they chose to save, which is always very perplexing, who they saved, who they didn't. And for Yellen to come out and say that, I, I think that there is a great fear um, of another massive recession. I heard uh, President uh, George W. Bush speak in, at uh, an investing conference a couple of years ago, and one of the things that he said that was very powerful was, I did not want to be a recession president. I did not want to be a depression president. And I didn't want that to be my legacy. And so when Bernanke came in and said, we have to do X, he's like, I was going to do it because I was afraid of what it meant to my legacy. So then you have these completely unrelated sort of levers and pulls on their sort of their soul and their heart and their mind about what they should do. And he's, and I appreciate that. I understand what he's saying, but it's just odd to me. So it makes you think, well, what the heck is Draghi? thinking. Why is she doing what she's doing? So I don't understand. If you take us back to 2008 and 2007, if you were in Ben Bernanke's shoes, should you not have taken rates down to emergency levels? Should he not have thrown every possible tool in the Federal Reserve's uh, toolkit at this crisis? No, I don't blame him for doing what he did. I think we were in uncharted territory. And I don't think People just couldn't see an end to it, right? And it was just, you know, they stopped the shorting of stocks. No one ever talks about that. Remember that you can short certain stocks? Right. 
uh, which is very odd to me now. You just look back at that time and you think what what I mean, I remember coming to work every day and going home every night and seeing the stock ticker and the stock symbol of all the stocks that were down for the day. And then what was the Dow down for the day? And you're driving home, and the last thing you see before you get on the downtown expressways, the Dow's down another 650 today. And you're thinking, when is this going to end? I mean, when is it ever going to end? Mm-hmm. And is there a bottom? Can we find it? What's what's the process? And so I think there was a lot of panic in the markets, and the governments didn't know what to do. So they did. And I, I think that's fine. Given what they were faced with, I think it's fine. My beef has been the length of this And I felt like the length of the government intervention, that quantitative easing, quantitative QE1, QE infinity, uh, I feel like that has really begun to adversely affect the market. They've tried to depress risk. And there's a whole sort of math discussion about if you um, you can't really remove risk from the market. No one believes they've removed risk. If they if they haven't removed risk, where have they taken the risk, right? And a lot of people would argue, and statistically speaking, we can discuss how this works, but you've moved it to the tails. And so there's a a cha- either a greater chance of a normal dislocation or a smaller chance of a greater dislocation than we've ever seen before. And so how do you, this has always been the great debate, is how do you ease your way out of this government intervention? And I just feel like the, the present administration, Obama et al., has sort of wanted it to remain in place because it's all been, you know... Hunky-dory. Hunky-dory. So why do we want to screw with it now? Let's just ease it. So you know nothing. You know nothing's going to happen in the next 18 months because I don't think Obama wants anything to screw with his legacy. But here's the thing. A couple of data points for you. Uh, Let's not forget that coming out of the dot-com crash in 2001, the Federal Reserve was already taking rates down by chunks, like 50 basis points, half point half-point cuts, and then 9-11 happens, and you have this unprecedented attack on uh, U.S. shores. And the Fed obviously wants to pump liquidity into the system. There's a sense of outright panic. And the Greenspan Fed held rates, if I remember correctly, at really minuscule lows well into 2004. And in 2020 hindsight, a lot of people say that that then induced reckless uh Credit speculation, risk taking, they called it promiscuous lending, which I thought was one of the, you know, Michael Steinhardt's uh, quote about the, the kind yes. of the dumb private equity and real estate and, and collateralization deals. Don't you think, and again, I'm not baiting you to say this, but you would think with the amount of debt outstanding there and the amount of debt, you talk about uh, global indebtedness being multiples of what we felt in 2007, that the potential uh, unwinding of this and the and the hiccups and the crises could be multiples as painful. True. Uh, still, I don't know. I can't remember where the rates were in 03 and 04. I just can't recall. Um, they weren't at zero. And they weren't at zero for four years. Mm. Um, and they still had room to go down if they had to. So it was a different unwinding. I mean, when you're in a zero interest rate environment for six or seven years, let's say, that just, I think, really promotes this uh, very wanton use of risk capital, right? Because you can borrow it for nothing. And the other thing, I mean, I know they've instituted Dodd-Frank and other sort of rules to try to curb crazy trading. But if you're going to, if you, you have to look at what the, the Fed did, but also what the government did and how they behaved in the midst of all this shenanigans. And if they're going to um, sort of make all these great losses public, right? You can privatize profits, but losses are public. I mean, that's just, it, it, it can encourage bad behavior. I think back in 04, I mean, it, there was speculation and it was the dot-com and all that stuff, but I don't think it was to the level we see today. And I think we, you know, it's very easy to, to look at things post-fact and commentate on what was done and why it was done and what happened and why it happened. And then trying to look forward and this idea of predicting what's going to happen is very challenging. I mean, I have to say, there's, there are guys out there that make a living doing it on websites and books and all that stuff, but it's very, very difficult because we are in, in unprecedented waters. And 
you know, the Fed is doing everything it can to make things uh, smooth and do this telegraphing and all that stuff, but it's very hard to tell. Now, roughly concurrent with the release of the iPhone in the summer of 2007, I have in front of me the um, uh, statement of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, the press release of the Federal Open Market Committee, June 28, 2007. The Federal Open Market Committee decided today to keep its target for the federal funds rate at five and a quarter percent. Economic growth appears to have been moderate during the first half of this year, despite the ongoing adjustment in the housing sector. The economy seems likely to continue to expand at a moderate pace over coming quarters. Uh, readings on core inflation have improved modestly in recent months. Um, you know, I, I can't believe looking back at this mm. that you had Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner, Tom Honig. Donald Cohn, obviously, uh, uh, you know, Janet Yellen was on this Federal Reserve as, as vice chairman back then. These guys completely whiffed and kept rates. Could you imagine the Fed funds rate at five and a quarter percent? Mm. I mean, treasuries at four, four, five percent. Free money. Free money. Well, just... no, people just don't believe that right now. That You'd remember like ING was sending around uh, postcards like you can open up a money market account for six percent. It seems inconceivable now that banks have been able to take for, for granted the fact that you could pay people nothing for their savings. That reminded me, of course, of that great line from Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I don't think you know what that word means. What does that word mean? What does that word mean? <laughs> Speaking of the 80s. Uh, now, it is interesting. People talk these days about interest rates of 5 or 6 or 7%, like we used to talk about interest rates of 19%. You know, when you would just, you could just go long treasuries and you know, clip a coupon of 17, 18% every single day. I mean, it's just crazy to me. Uh, and it's interesting. I don't know why we've seen this sort of dumbing down, why people don't remember, why they don't prepare for, why they don't invest in light of, not in spite of our past, right? They're like, I, it doesn't really matter what's happened. We're going to full speed ahead. We're long and strong. The equities are still going. There's, there's you know, sunny days ahead. No one thinks about those days and what can happen at the inflection point. So we are where we are and we're all wondering what's going to happen. But that inflection point, that period when it moves from this regime to another regime, it doesn't necessarily, it's hard to say we're, I feel like we're in a regime, a regime change. I mean, I don't know many portfolios that are positioned for sort of the world is coming to an end. No one's buying guns and stockpiling. Well, in Virginia, that's probably not true. They probably are. But, um, the world, the, the world disaster scenario isn't playing out in the practitioners that I've talked to, which I think is very funny. If you ask somebody on Wall Street or folks in the space where we where we spend a lot of our time, they just think we have no idea why, but equities continue to to, to, to trend up. Well, what uh, about this argument that there's nowhere else to put your money? I mean, the Fed is smoking you out of safety. If you're trying to yes. stay in cash and point. you don't believe the government's inflation statistics, you see where food prices are, you see where housing prices are, you see where healthcare costs are going. Don't give me this core CPI deflator, all this stuff. You know, I'm losing money in real terms by keeping it in a bank account then you're induced to put your money somewhere. Like you're seeing it with South Americans in Miami, uh, the people who are really terrified of expropriation or inflation yeah, 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 in yeah. places like Argentina and Venezuela. And they're like, I don't care. I will. I, I don't care if I lose you know, money nominally on a condo 10, 20% over a couple of years. It's about return of capital, not return on capital. True. And I think that um, we talk about that a lot. We think about that a lot. Um, and I think you have to understand where the average investor is coming from, what they're thinking about. Are they outcome-based 
Are they benchmark-based? If you're an outcome-based investor, then you're thinking about over the long term, over a cycle, how is my portfolio going to grow? What am I scared of? Am I scared of missing a huge uprun? Do people even remember what scared is? You know, I'm no. using that word again. 100% not. Right? We were fear. Like, you talk about the wages of fear. That's late 2008, early 2009, where you just look every day out of the corner of your eye at CNBC, and the markets would be down five, 600 points. And that is where everybody tells us, where Warren Buffett and, and people tell us when you see that indiscriminate selling is when you should wade back into it. Now, we see price earnings ratios inflated. We've seen junk has had an epic run. I mean, I wish Mike Milken would come out and comment <laughs> on this. It would make All the Drexel blush. guys are like, oh. They'd make them blush. This makes the 1980s right. seem like like right. child's play. And this is a stat that absolutely boggles the mind. Um, boggles the mind. Boggle. Yes, it does. Uh, according, to v, according to V-Economics, global debt uh, in the fourth quarter of the year 2000 was at $87 trillion. In the fourth quarter of the year 2007 was at $142 trillion. Global debt in the second quarter of 2014 was at just under $200 trillion. So global debt has increased by $57 trillion since the financial crisis. All right, $57 trillion. That's outpacing world GDP growth. And that is a number that you just cannot, you know, at that point, central banks, it's like it's like Jupiter fighting with the sun. You know, yeah, 100%. there's just no way to fight something like that. So yeah, when you talk to certain managers out there, you wonder, like, what keeps you up at night? How does this stuff unwind? If it unwinds, does the world get terrified and then pile back into U.S. treasuries, which are looked at as the readout of safety, thereby giving us an easier time, an easier landing than other countries? Um, Do we see rates spike up like they did in the financial crisis when I think junk bond rates were at 20%, 22%? I mean, I just can't play this out in my head. You can run it into a Monte Carlo simulation or read Grants, interest rate observers, there seem to be a thousand and twenty-five trillion different outcomes. And I, I don't know kind of where to place it. I agree. And I will tell you that as we travel and I talk to investors and I talk to other managers, one of the things that I've heard a number of times is there are very astute, sort of legendary money managers that have said when it came up one time about six months ago in the context of somebody asking a famous trader if they're gonna retire, they're in their late 50s, early 60s, and he says, not to this not to this current situation plays itself out. We are positioned in a certain way, and this is going to be an epic unwind, and we want to be a part of uh, be a part of that and taking advantage, advantage of, of that dislocation. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're fearful when other people are greedy and greer, greedy when they're fearful. And to that point, you have um, uh, Howard Marks of Oak Tree, one of these legendary oh, investors great. out he's there. He's tremendous. He's tremendous. He's really respected in the smart money set. He came out and told uh, Bloomberg Television uh, that investors should focus on preventing losses rather than chasing returns in this period after years of zero interest rates promoted excessive risk-taking. He actually said this in his in his uh, quarterly letter uh, to clients, yes. which everybody reads. Yes. So, it, quote, when undemanding capital markets and a low level of risk aversion combine to encourage investors to engage in risky practices, something usually goes wrong eventually, he wrote to clients. We have to behave accordingly. Today, I feel it's important to pay more attention to loss prevention than the pursuit of gain. How do you how do you actually go out there and say that to clients, Brian? A hundred percent that is true. And it's true to a lot of different levels. And it's amazing the, the, the investment advisors that come into our office to talk about managed futures, to talk about tail risk, crisis alpha, all these things that managed futures and what we do provide to investors. 
it's shocking to me to hear them talk about the clients and the clients get very frustrated with they might their lag their perform a lot of the RAs that we talked to last year were up the registered investment advisors registered investment the, the fee only investment advisors were up sort of low single digits to high single digits and they're getting eviscerated because they have put together a thoughtful plan of asset allocation diversification risk management uh, and the, and the, in, the typical investor comes back frustrated that they didn't sort of meet match or exceed the S&P even though they were clearly told, I mean, in all the documents, the portfolio is not designed to beat the S&P. So people have this disconnect. In bull markets, they want to beat the market. In bear markets, they don't want to lose money. Well, those are sort of almost diametrically opposed uh, sort of philosophies and theories. You can't always have both of that. If you want to have a thoughtfully constructed portfolio, uh, on its face, prima facie, it's going to be very difficult to beat I missed prima facie on the, on the SAE, face on it. the SAE on the face of it. Yeah, I, I don't. You probably went you to some it. fancy Latin school. Public school guy. I'm a public school guy. Oh gosh, look through. at you. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking to Brian Broadway of Aspen Partners, an alternative investment shop uh, that has a 300 million dollar mutual fund under its belt. Uh, Brian has been there now for a year. Yep, that's right. And prior to that, he was a disciple of famous turtle trader Jerry Parker, where you were with him at Chesapeake Capital for quite a long time. For 20 years. He's one of the best. He's on the Mount Rushmore of trading. Uh, he's. Uh, I was very fortunate to work for him for 20 years, and I was a big believer in sort of the basic philosophy of risk management and trend following and things like that when I arrived. And he is just a genius and a great trader, and he understands risk and how to trade around risk uh, with some of the very best in the world. I've met a lot of great traders around the world that trade lots of different things, and Jerry is just one of the, the great minds in our business and was very appreciative and thankful, and it changed my life. I mean, a lot of what I, who I am and what I'm saying today, I've learned from just listening to him and him investing in me. So he's a great guy and a great trader, one of the very, very best, one of the brightest minds uh, ever. So where does trend following actually, you know, you talk in, in one breath about we talk about the Howard Marks uh, paradox and and being uh, fearful when other people are greedy and worrying more about capital preservation in an environment where the animal spirits are roaring and you could take any you know they they, they have this new term now for billion dollar startups unicorns right um, how do you then how do you square this with with trend following which I still am under the impression that the trend is positive yeah you don't want to go up against it you kind of want to follow true. the momentum that's exactly right yeah. We, we often joke about that in our shop, and we used to at Chesapeake as well, is we have lots of opinions about what's going to happen in the markets, but uh, we, you know, we trade based on what our systems tell us to do. So uh, we, there's two different things. There is what do we think is going to happen and what do our systems say. So we're still uh, long equities. We're short bonds. We're long the dollar. We're short commodities. I mean, that, short commodities, that's just looking at our sort of trend-following systems, which is similar to what it used to be back at Chesapeake, these trend core trend-following systems. And the beauty of the trend-following system is they provide great crisis alpha. And what I mean by that is in periods of severe market dislocation, by definition, what that means is the market is going straight up or straight down, usually fairly fast and fairly large in that way. And so trend followers don't predict. They have no interest in predicting, but they have a lot of interest in participating in large market moves. And so periods of higher volatility, market dislocation, typically are very, very good for trend followers. Because if it's uh, the markets, the equity, now it's painful for all the rest of the economic community. It can wreak havoc in people's portfolio. But for our trading style, we tend to do very, very well. So Aspen was up 38 uh, 
in 2008 because of the mostly in the fourth quarter because of the market dislocation. So all the trend followers out there they they provide this. So wait, the market was actually down 38 percent for all of 2008. Right, it was its worst year since the Great Depression. Yes. And Aspen was up 38%. That's correct. Wow. So, what, and you know, we trade like a lot of trend followers stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, diversified portfolio that is pure trend following, just looking to take advantage of uh, price trends in the market. We, like I said, we, we participate in them. We don't call tops and bottoms. You can go out of business by trying to predict when the market's going to turn. So, we don't ever, most trend followers don't try to predict, they just try to participate in those trends. And so, it, it saves you from trying to wonder when is it going to turn. All you know is once it turns, we're going to participate. That's the nature of trend following. These models have an ability to identify when a trend is up or down, whether it's in stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, and so you participate. So when you're, and what also happens in trend following, it tends to have a positive convexity, and that's just a statistical anomaly such that um, when the when when the equity performance is down, we tend to be up, and when equity performance up, we're we're up a little bit as well. So. Um, there's just there's statistical nuances to trend following that have us provide a portfolio benefit in times of dispute. how concerned are clients about interest rates right now? You saw very uh, Goldman Sachs came out. Um, the uh, was it Goldman Sachs International Vice Chairman Michael Sherwood was just on CNBC and he said that um, on, there's unprecedented volatility in bond markets. You see crazy things like, for example, uh, the benchmark. Uh, bond in Europe is the German Bund, correct? Yes. And its yield was at a record low of 0.05% in April. And that yield has since shot up to 0.885%. You don't see these kinds of swings. And moreover, in, in normal times, right, uh, there, there's no depression going on in Europe right now. Certainly some economies have collapsed. Who the heck is is racing to hand over money to uh, Germany uh, for all of 0.05%? And you saw it in Switzerland where they were accepting a negative rate. Right. Like they're so scared that they want to give it to the strongest gold-backed economy in the Alps. How does that even work? It's interesting. I have to believe that they I are... mean, you have to be like eating cat food in bread lines to be, to be doing stuff like that. That's exactly right. And where else do you go? Like you were asking earlier, where do you go? I mean, there are some options and there's some interesting places to go. But from a fixed income, from a interest rate point of view, where do you go? I mean, the one thing I think a lot of investors are, are, are chewing on is who has the l- lowest likelihood of default? And I think they would look and say the Swiss and the Germans. So in Europe, if you're an investor in Europe and you want to keep that, you already have a bunch of money in the U.S., I think Germany and, and Switzerland are the only two places probably to go. And so it's just uh, – you don't have Why? a lot of Why? Didn't, didn't the, the European Central Bank, which effectively is backstopped by Germany, right, the, the big player, the heavyweight, if you were to think of a continental alliance here in the Western Hemisphere, if it was like – Mexico, Canada, the U.S., and South America, obviously Washington and the Fed would be the big player, and it would chiefly be linked to the U.S. dollar. Similarly, over there in Europe, whatever the ECB does, I'm saying that you're not really looking at Portuguese debt as Portuguese debt or Greek debt as as Greek debt. These things are ultimately going to be backstopped by Germany because Germany could potentially lose the most if this unholy alliance, this unholy union uh, comes apart. That's true. And that's a very interesting question. So it's almost like an arbitrage. If I'm buying right. Italian debt, I'm effectively buying German debt. Exactly. No, I think that's exactly right. And I don't I think that Germany will will do everything it can to prevent one of the pigs to default. Now this Now the pigs are, tell us again. Uh Portugal, Ireland, Italy, and Greece. And Spain. 
In Spain. And Spain. So Pigs, all these yes. countries, these were the weak players that kind of pig-like. They binged on debt. They lied about their finances. They were promiscuous uh, over spending, the last decade. Yeah. And when bad things happened, for example, the property crash in Spain, a bunch of bank failures, uh, youth unemployment at 25%. Spain is effectively insolvent, but because it's not using the peso anymore, it's using the euro, which is linked to uh, the, the German... Uh, the, the German currency, right? The Deutschmark. Germany has to come in there and protect Spain because it's a brother. Like if it were to decouple, it's almost like a Lehman Brothers type event. If Lehman Brothers goes, the entire continent goes. Plus German banks are fraught with the pig's debt. And so they were binging on this debt. They took for granted that it was just as good as their homeland debt. That's exactly right. So what we all, and I haven't seen lots of studies along this lines, but you know, the the, the thinking is that the German banks balance sheet are just full of these pigs debt and so they didn't want them to default because that would put the German banks in peril and so Angela Merkel was just sort of forced to step in and say that sounds like a policy of denial it sounds like you're 100%. just you're just throwing money at it kicking the can or trying to throw money at it to kind of paper over the problem literally with paper that's right and I wonder too you know there's this huge contagion effect like could the EU survive one of those countries going under that's one question the second is would in fact one of those countries going going broke, defaulting, would it cause the others to go default? So it really is. I I think part of the discussion is if Greece goes, well then will the will then the others go, or can they isolate it to just Greece? And back what three years ago, two three in 2011, it's like everything. I think everybody was afraid that they would all go. There's a there was a real concern that the contagion would. If Greece went, then they all would go. But then when the ECB comes in and Mario Draghi says we'll do everything we have to, he's effectively saying. I got accent. your back. Yeah. yeah exactly. You say it in his accent. <laughs> I can't say it in his accent. <laughs> I can do Sepp Blatter, though. Give me the money. I can do Nouriel Rabini. Yeah. <laughs> you know how to get me there. Yes, exactly. What happened is I read you that FOMC statement, uh, kind of nonplussed in June of 2007. That's already eight years ago, amazingly, when we only got the, the initial cracks of this financial crisis. There were some subprime lenders failing out in Orange County, some smaller players. You, you started hearing mumblings about these hedge yes. funds at Bear Stearns. But they kept interest rates, their main rate at five and a quarter percent. In uh, as late as June of 2007, then when things start really becoming desperate and you see banks on Wall Street confessing that there's serious distress on their balance sheets, the Fed cuts rates by 50 basis points, a half a point in September, to four and three quarters percent. By December 11th, it's at four and a quarter percent. By April 30th, it's down to two percent, April 30th of 2008. And by then we see that Bear Stearns is effectively insolvent. Take it all the way to December 16 of 2008, and this is after Lehman fails. You have the AIG imbroglio. Interest rates are down to 0.25 to 0%. There's nothing more they could do. In nothing fact, else. they came in after this and said, because we've we've exhausted our traditional tool of the short-term rate, right. we have to conjure up other tools. We have to go out there and buy treasury securities. We have to buy mortgage securities. Um and so I, I really worry, and a lot of people worry out there how this gets unwound. This is not just a traditional rate cycle unwinding. This is the mother of all unwinds. I agree. That is where the big scare is. How are they going to do that? How are they going to do it effectively? And I think that's what they're wrestling with. I mean, I think that that will be the hallmark of Yellen's career. But why market. should I trust her? Why you should shouldn't. I trust them? They were they were the ones who were telling me nothing is wrong as late as two, June of 2007. I mean, people seem to think that they have special economist glasses on and they can see things that we can't <laughs> right. see. Right. But can they? No. 
No, I don't think so. I, I think a lot of that is just policy honks, um, folks trying to keep people calm. I mean, one of the things you see, I mean, they don't like to be quoted. They don't like to speak. They don't want their words. They're very cautious on their words moving the market and people reading too much. So I think that, you know, Bernanke uh, got better at this where he just refused to say a whole lot. I think Yellen is the same way. And I think this, The Great Unwind, there's a book in this. I think this should be your next book, The Great Unwind. Uh, and we're probably approaching the beginning of that. And certainly, I mean, who knows? I mean, this is pure speculation, but you wonder, is it the next 18 months? It's, it's a next presidency issue, in my opinion. I said that earlier, that I don't think in this presidency he's going to say a whole lot. I think he's brought Yellen in. Obama hasn't said, no craziness, no craziness. You really believe that the president can just tell the Fed to do something or not do something? I mean, after all, George W. Bush appointed Bernanke, and Bernanke couldn't save a Republican White House. True. But I absolutely think that uh, old school Chicago politics rule here and that uh, he is— Oh, my gosh. You are one of those those Jack Welch conspiracy theories. Wait, wait, wait. Why did did he bring this into the studio? People don't do background check. What's going on here? Yes. Well, if you had the chance, having said that, would you turn—I'm putting you on the spot, in the hot seat, Brian Broadway— uh, if you bumped into Janet Yellen at uh, your country club, would you turn to her and say, listen here, now that ain't working. That's the way to do it. <laughs> I would, in fact, say that to her. I've, um, I don't miss an opportunity uh, to speak to folks that are sort of my grand nemesis, i.e. when I saw Dick Vitale in a hotel at Notre Dame one year for a football game. I walked right up to him and I said, why do you love Duke so much? It's a little offensive to all the rest of us. And he's like, I'm just here to watch a football game with my daughter. I hope you have a great day. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I just want a quick question. He's like, all right, have a great time. And he walked away. Uh, so I never missed an opportunity to confront evil. I'd love to see the Secret Service jump you in D.C. We should totally do another show I would show say, yo, Janet Yellen, this is just not right. What, you, what should the they right be thing. doing? Then you tell me what is the right thing. What should they have done? You're, you said earlier that the unwind should have started earlier. Much you earlier. understand that 2008 was right. emergency. Right. So when, when, I don't know. I have to think about that. But I definitely think the QE in ad finitum is a little ridiculous. And I think this should have started easing rates slowly. I think that the economy can probably could have probably handled it. I mean, I'm not an economist, obviously, but I just think they could have stopped this QE in ad finitum. Because what was happening was the markets were not behaving, Robin, like they historically had behaved. Correlations were at one, you had the risk on, risk off phenomenon that was happening. Volatility was uh, sort of exogenously repressed. And so you're seeing market behaviors. Are you exogenously repressed? Am I, uh, I think I am, actually. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. As a son of the South. I am. All right. Continue. So I just think you began to see behaviors over long periods of time that were not normal. They were just beyond sort of statistical study. And it was it seemed to me after a while, traders and money managers thinking this is just not how long can this go on? This is a little bit crazy. And so we don't know when we don't know why. If if we I mean, the market has done nothing but gone up and just nothing but gone, just gone crazy. Right. Uh, and you think, why in the world do they continue to have this policy on year after year after year of equity growth like that? Hard to say. Why wouldn't they? I mean, well, you're assuming that she's just targeting the equity and junk markets, right? They want to ultimately get companies to hire people. You haven't seen full evidence, even though their no, headline their headline true. unemployment rates back under six percent. You haven't seen evidence that people are willing to invest in human capital instead of just stock buybacks or the ledger domain of of refinancing debt or you know the Apple arbitrage where yes. we can we can do this with our balance sheet and get this from our balance sheet and and have it translate in the stock market. Uh, you know what makes this expansion different from other expansions? We're talking about 
eight or nine million jobs evaporated if you consider also the rate of the workforce sure. uh, growth over seven eight years. Right, all that. And then, and then on top of that. Um, uh, there's, there's just been this no, no pronounced uh, move for companies to go there and hire people. You don't get this impression if you're a, That's a, fair point. A, a, a corporation right now that you're leaving money and revenue on the table by not expanding payrolls. No, I think that's probably right. I think that there are issues in the economy that have not yet been resolved. I think the economy isn't as healthy as uh, certainly the current administration would like it to be. But I just can't figure out then. This is the conversation I had a couple of weeks ago is with a guy. Why are the equity markets continuing to go crazy? Uh, if the economy isn't as healthy as it once was or they want it to be and jobs aren't growing, w- what is driving this? And why are people f- are, are people really feeling like they're better off, right? I'm not sure they are. But what it, if it's just desperation and um, a certain kind of um, laziness? I mean, you get used to it. You see the Fed's going to get your back. Uh, that that you're not getting anything in cash, you're not getting anything in bonds. You don't want to lock up your money in 30-year he, bonds. He, here's what the real scary thing is, Robin. You hinted, you alluded to it, and I think you might have said something too. I don't know that we talked about it very much, but what's scary about right now is the Fed has no more bullets in its chambers. Right? Rates are as low as they can go. They've gone QE in that fun item. I think they are scared to death of dislocation. Because is it going to be part of the unwind is going to expose itself? Are markets going to sell off in a just crazy way? Nobody knows what the trigger is going to be. It was housing last time. It was the tech bubble the time before. So they don't necessarily know what that trigger is going to be. But I think there is a great, great fear of what that's going to look like. And I think that they have – what else can they do? What else can they possibly do? They have nothing else left to do. And so if there is an unwind, if there is a massive – at least before they could lower rates and start – you know, pumping money into the well, economy. Well, they could start printing out gift cards is what they can do. Dropping them from a helicopter. And I've told, I've said before that, you know, we've had quantitative easing. Brian, I've asked for qualitative easing where <laughs> where I'm just Janet Yellen can get on the radio Quality. in the fireside chat, hold my hands and say, Robin, it will be all right. Pat you on the back. It'll, it'll be better in the morning. Go buy some shares. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Brian Broadway of Aspen Partners. He's no spring chicken. He started investing in uh, 1995. You graduated college when? Uh, 1991. And you went to B school? Yes, I did. I went to University of North Carolina Business School, went to Virginia undergrad. So I finished in B school in 99. Um, so they say that that first year out of college uh, is, is what really time stamps your memory, your institutional memory. Um, I graduated in 1998. We had the Russian financial crisis, LTCM. I had to take the Series 7. It was a period of enhanced volatility. Emerging markets became unglued. That was my normal. What was your normal, again, the year you graduated? 91. What was your normal? My normal was... Uh, Gulf Sta- War, SNL crisis. What was going on? Uh, the Gulf War and uh, Stanley Druckenmiller and Soros, those guys shorting the British pound. You know, the pound and the... Uh, the uh, Deutschmark were linked back then. And it was just a fascinating time in the markets. And those guys shorted the crap out of the pound. And God bless them. They made so much money. It was wonderful. That kind of opened my eyes to there's a whole different world out there. And there's different ways to make money. Um, I was a big fan of Paul Jones. Everybody, if you're you know from UVA, he's sort of one of the druids. Uh, everybody loves Paul Jones. And you knew of him. But there. you're not talking about like some drummer from Led Zeppelin or something. Yeah. You know? No, 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 Paul Tudor Jones. He's one of the greatest <laughs> traders of all time. He's, he's just tremendous. He's a UVA alum. Not a whole lot of love. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's my timestamp is sort of um, some of the great, you know, the Gulf War, what happened to oil, the dollar, shorting the pound. I mean, it, was a, it, was, it wasn't the wild. I mean, I would look at the 80s, 70s and 80s, sort of the Wild West and the markets and lots of money to be made. 
and markets to be traded. And um, you began to see during my lifetime the real inst- institutionalization of money management, uh, the, the sort of emergence of hedge funds and guys trading and making money in very different ways, the emergence of, of guys like Buffett. I mean, who, I mean, not many people had heard of Buffett. Uh, in 1985. Well, mm. by 1995, everyone had. But true or false, but by 1994, when Alan Greenspan was the druid in charge and he could do no wrong, um, the Federal Reserve was coming off of the SNL crisis and the Gulf War and, uh, you know, Desert Storm one and all, but the, you know, but a couple the SNL of crisis failing. gave us the Phoenician. I mean, I just think we have, you know. Say again? The SNL crisis gave us the Phoenician. A, can- a casino? No, the Phoenician in Phoenix, the Grand Resort built by— uh, You are so inside baseball. This is oh, man, it's a mother-of-pearl pool, right? It's wonderful. But the SNL crisis, we talk about institutional memory, is also, by and large, forgotten. It 100%. didn't really inform uh, subprime and everything that yeah. fell apart then. And um, what I want to get at is, you know, you, you were just on the brink of your uh, investing coming of age. Yes. And 1994 was the last time— uh, Federal Reserve had to jump in and kind of really blindside the markets and say, whoa, 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 we have been too loose for too long. We see pressures out there. We got to tighten the spigots fast. We alluded to this yes. earlier. Is there anybody out there? You know, I don't meet many bond managers who were on desks in 1994. I don't meet people who suffered through anything other than, okay, yes, the financial crisis and um, junk bond uh, spread spiking and maybe the temper tantrum in, in 2013, which was very short-lived. But, but what's interesting is <clears throat> back in the day, if you asked people, you know, one of the great books of the 90s was The Predator's Ball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Milken was just a legend, right? He was a legend. and Mike Milken, the father of junk bonds. Absolutely. And ran Drexel Burnham. And most people in the 90s couldn't tell you what he was doing. And I was an auditor when I first came out of school. And I remember auditing a, a uh, insurance company here that was taken over by the state uh, corporation commission, the state insurance commission, because it had so much junk bonds. And I remember auditing those guys. We came in to, to check their books. And uh, they had all this this paperwork, these pitch books from Drexel Burnham selling them junk bonds. I, I kept one of them because it was so fantastic how they would market junk bonds. And people were buying these things like crazy. So all through the late 80s and 90s, this company was one of the big clients of Drexel. And they would come in and do the big pitch and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, I don't think most people realize what's going on here, what they're selling. You know, I mean, they had a list of all the crazy bonds. You're like, oh, my gosh. How in the world did these people buy this stuff? But they were great salesmen. They were great firms. I mean, so he was a real icon of that period. Ivan Bosky and, you know, stories of him buying two, you know, a whole row on the the uh, the Concord so that no one could sit next to him, that kind of stuff. Right, those, are, right. those are just great stories of excess. And uh, The Predator's Balls is a good read, if you will. Um, so that's what, I, that's what I remember. And it was uh, everybody... In that time, the guys that made lots and lots of money that you heard about all did it illegally. You knew they were making lots of money because they were going to jail. There weren't guys owning baseball teams or owning Picassos or things like that. It wasn't the great art collectors. It was guys that were getting caught selling junk bonds to small insurance companies in Richmond, Virginia. And so it really sort of, you're like, wow, this is a rigged game. And then, you know, you meet somebody like I did and you go, wait a minute, this is a really interesting way to make money. And there are lots of good guys out there doing it the right way. So where are we right now? Uh, in the limited, you, you're obviously a student of history. There are only so many ways that history repeats itself uh, over the last 20, 25, 30 years. Is there any neat analog for you as to where we are right now? There's not. I think one of the, the of course, one of the bond markets that's obviously very pertinent here in Richmond is the Confederate bond market. That is still a real thin market, I will say. That hadn't changed over the last 100 years, 150 years, actually. So... Um, all of us that still have some Confederate bonds are holding on to those. 
hoping for a brighter day. Maybe on eBay somewhere. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so where are we? I, I think that, um, like I was mentioning earlier, I don't think know many people that have a portfolio or a posturing of the world is going to end. I think we're going to see more of the same. And I think you're going to see rates um, sort of stay where they've been. I don't see them. They've alluded to. I just don't see them raising rates. Why not? Why? There seems You said there's all this slack in the system. They I kind know, of have to I mop it up. They might do a little bit. I, I think Obama, the current administration, might get some pressure to do something. And so there's going to be a little bit of the do something mentality, but they're not going to do much. They're not going to do and They're not going to raise 50 bips or 75 basis points. Maybe they keep talking about it, alluding to it. So when they talk about talking about it, it's all good. But when they talk about doing something, people get really rattled. So right now they're just talking about talking about it. But in the in the dress rehearsal for this kind of in the posturing in 2013, when Ben Bernanke came out and mentioned the possibility of tapering, tapering. The the icing uh, on the uh, top of taper easing, tantrum. right? People, taper tantrum. That was that was pretty jolting for the bond markets. There were bond shops that let go of people. You saw volatility, but then when the world freaked out, the paradox again is that when the world freaks out on balance, the world parks trillions of euros and yen and and uh, Chinese yuan in American dollars and buys U.S. debt, thereby bringing our rates back down and and bailing us out. It seems like we have it uniquely good, or maybe we're just complacent and delusional. Probably a little bit of both. I think, you know, what's really interesting is I think that the scary part and and, and interesting part is that I wonder how many portfolios out there are just just chock full of this debt, right? And if there's a bloodletting, how bad it's going to be in people's portfolios. Yeah, do people even remember? Actually, on the retail level, I know this is not your province or anything, but do people, do bond investors know what it's like to lose money in bonds? Heck no, they don't. It's been one of the great bull markets of it's our It's not just the 30-year bull market. You know, we used to talk about uh, the inflection of the bond market in 1982 or something when, who was, the, who was the, uh, the Fed chair back then? Paul Volcker. Volcker. You know, he slam breaks, tighten, tighten things coming out of the stagflation of, you know, Morning America and Ronald Reagan. And everything was gravy from then on because the Fed could just reduce rates. Yep. But there's nothing to reduce from at this point. Right. You really have to ratchet up. And it brings me... Kind of in the last, uh, you know, eight or nine minutes that we have, um, when in history was it normal? If you think back to your, this is the meaning of life question that I want to throw at everyone. It's my parents throw back at me. If you take one excerpt from this show, I mean, it wasn't normal if you're watching Good Times in the late 70s and they're talking about <laughs> temporary layoffs. Good, Good times. times, easy credit ripoffs. Good times. I don't even know what she's saying there, but. Ain't we lucky we got them? No, they weren't. It was yes. a dreary time, and it wasn't normal when you know the interest rates were at fifteen or sixteen percent, and your barely solvent savings and loan institution would offer you a toaster and uh, all these sponges for your business. Um, when was it normal? When, if you back away Federal Reserve largest dot com, this you know blah 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 that when when were we operating at our organic ability? The United States. That is a very good question. I ask very good questions. You do of the. Many things you do. Uh, we, we, one of the questions we were debating this morning is, um, what does normalcy look like? That's What does it look like? And if you can define what it looks like, then you can really think about how do you want to construct a portfolio for the long term? What does normalcy look like? Which it leads to your question of, when was it last normal? That's a very good question. I mean, I think of the problem with sort of the mid to late 90s was you, you, you went from a decent economy to the dot-com boom, right? And that just was incredibly unhealthy and just craziness. Um, I can't remember. 
I mean, there's always these periods of fluctuation, right? There's always this dynamic that's going on, and it's hard to to figure out when it, you know, it, it's normal for some people right now, I'm sure, they feel like, this is great, this is all I know. But for guys that have been in the market for the last 25 or 30 years, what does normal look like? It certainly doesn't look like this. I know that. It doesn't look like this is not normal. This is not normal economic behavior. Now, we haven't seen anything like this before, so no one could have predicted zero interest rates for seven years, but... I can't think of a time that was completely normal. I mean, 93, 4, 5, maybe? I can't but remember. But was it rates were still held low, right? We're coming out of the SNL crisis. I'm trying to think of a time, and I ask people, you know, we've, we've, we've had people who've been on Wall Street on this show for 50, 60 years. We asked them, they don't seem to know. There was always something happening in the world, whether it was uh, the, the gold standard or the dollar allowed right, to right, float, right. or we have... Um, uh, various crises, uh, um, um, fraud in the system, uh, investor sentiment, PEs at nosebleed levels. So the point is, maybe it's never normal. And maybe, you know, when they talk you about these massive swings, you have these great swings and understanding those swings of health and unhealth and craziness. And you hear really smart investors talk. And the one thing I will say I've heard a lot lately is guys are thinking, really intelligent guys that understand risk and return are beginning to say more and more, this feels a lot like it felt in 03, 04, 07, 08, sort of late 07, early. It's beginning to feel Was it like, Drunkenmiller that said that? Yeah, Stanley said that. Uh, he's given that same speech a couple different times. and Famous hedge fund investor, Stan Drunkenmiller. Yeah, he, he's from Richmond. He went to school here in high school in Richmond, and he gave a speech here. He's given the, it's the same speech a couple of times, um, and it's very informative. I encourage everyone to read it. It's fascinating, talking about how he and others have felt that this is something a little bit interesting. This is different. Something's coming. And so who knows what that means? Um, I can tell you certainly what it probably means is he's already positioned to take advantage of that. If they're talking about how they feel, then their positions are already on um, for sure. So, so if that, it's, But if it's 2003, 2004, and you take them at face value, then there's still a lot of uh, music to play, like a to lot quote of Chuck to Prince, right? That's right. Three, four more years of self-delusion. And that's where it's not about investors. It's about speculation, kind of um, I, I will stay in as long as I can and let the next guy be dumber than me and the next guy get screwed. And that is where it becomes a really dangerous game. That's right. Um, you know, he stands a little bit different than uh, a lot of the folks that, that I talk to because he believes in highly concentrated bets. That's sort of his strategy is um, really get a good idea and, and pile in. And sort of how we view it or my worldview has been shaped by the folks that I've worked with for 20 plus years. And it's just diversification. And so all of this stuff, there is protection. There is the opportunity for people to navigate these markets. It's not like there isn't a solution. Um, it's not like we're in a quandary that you can't. It's not a, 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 you're not being interviewed to work at Google, and there's just no right answer to this question. There are things that you can do to protect yourself and to be smart about it. But you can't be greedy. Um, guys, folks that are greedy n rarely succeed in investing in the markets because they make crazy decisions. And so while it is treacherous, while it is unprecedented, while it is crazy, no one can predict, no one knows what normal, all those, those are all true, everything we said today. But there are ways to think about it, and there are ways to uh, invest that can help decrease the likelihood of your sort of portfolio cratering, Right. Um, because no matter what happens, we, we, you and I both, we've been in this long enough to know that there are crises, there will be many more crises, 100-year events, every five to seven years, and they're going to happen, and it's going to be often look very different than the last one, caused by something very different from the last one. But if you're smart and thoughtful and patient, um, then you can construct a portfolio that can survive. So the markets are crazy, interest rate environment is unprecedented, but there are ways to sort of survive and navigate. And Brian Broadway, in closing, I'm going to take you back to that song, 
Money for Nothing, June of 1985. Uh, who was helping the lead singer of Dire Straits on that beautiful track? I want to test your institutional memory, your muscle memory. Uh, Debbie Harry. No. Think about it. Sing it. I want my... You don't know this. You are a I child of the 80s. It was Sting. Was Sting? it really? Yes, yeah, Sting. Well, that's funny. On you... one of his rare private label efforts. There of were course lots of private Sting. label people. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Yes, Michael yes. Jackson did it, private yes. label. I always feel like. Mm, right? Van, Eddie Van Halen did it for Michael Jackson. The 80s were like a private label time of, so you know, of interest rates may have been at 11, 12%, but there was a lot of collaboration. Is this like Run DMC and Aerosmith? Yes, all that stuff happened, and we just have not seen that uh, in the aughts or the, the 2010s. But Yes. Um, I just wanted to, to test your muscle memory one last time. It seems like you are a spring chicken. If you can't volley the serve with dire straits with me, I mean, what good is your interest rate? Well, advice? I will tell you that if you do watch um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I mean, all of the license plates in Ferris Bueller's Day Off have a reference to other John Hughes films. So take a look at that next time. That's I, I will do that. I hope you come back. Mr. Brian Broadway of Aspen Partners, the alternative investment shop that sits on a $300 million mutual fund. So kind of you to join us today. Dr. Farzad, this has been great. I enjoyed it very much. I look forward to doing it again very soon. Full disclosure, we're on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, WRIR. We are AAA rated, prime rib, alt A, blue chip, inverse triple leverage, growth at a reasonable price, bald bracket, currency hedge, no load, two and 20, and fat tailed. All about the fat tail. Our engineer is John Valentine. I'm Robin Farzad. Full disclosure, back at you next week.